this morning we'll uh, look at uh, the 24th chapter of Acts, if you want to open there. I'll read the, ten fir- the first 10 verses, and then we'll work our way through the chapter. This morning is uh, Paul, who's been a free man up to this point, having completed three missionary journeys. will finish out the rest of his life uh, as a prisoner. And we see that uh, beginning right here. Actually, we saw it last week. A few days of it, anyhow. And uh, we transition now into chapter 24. I'll open in prayer, and then I'll read the first ten verses. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your loving kindness your long-suffering, your mercy and gracious, gracious gift to us, granting us the faith to believe and trust in your provision, the one who is the way, the one who is the life, the one who is truth, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, prepare our hearts today for worship. Prepare your people as they come in and you're preparing their kids, Lord, to enter into the communion of the saints. May you uh, bless our time together this morning, that you be glorified, and that we would grow with a greater understanding of your um, redemptive work um, in and through the life of the Apostle Paul, for which we uh, are beneficiaries to this very day. In Christ's name, amen. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, you yourself, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, And we'll look at that reply in just a few minutes. But uh, last week, we saw how providence, God's providence acts. We see how God moves by way of providence. We're seeing that in the life of Joseph as well, amen? It's very clear um, um, that his providence is, is never dependent upon his own miracles, if you will, supernatural miracles, to carry out his sovereign will by way of providence. Of course, there are miracles today. I think we'll all agree with that. Um, but the, the miracles that God primarily performs that we bear witness of, uh, most specifically, is the miracle of the new birth. Dead men and dead women brought to life in Christ Jesus. That is a miracle. I don't have to look at my own life to see that miracle. And 
I'm so thankful for it. But this is a day where, you know, God doesn't speak by way of dreams and visions um, as he did with, say, Joseph as we're studying um, or as some of the things he did um, through the apostles by the signs um, of an apostle. As a matter of fact, as we move towards the end of Acts, we see the signs of an apostle kind of disappearing. And we see really the providence of God take, take center stage. How God is working out his plan in and through um, the life of his called apostle, um, the apostle Paul. So uh, a miracle, I think it's important that we understand a miracle is when God interrupts the natural world to accomplish his purpose. Whereas providence is when God uses all circumstances of the natural world to fulfill his promise and his will. His purposes in life. So to, today we see you know, God moving through um, many ways and, and doing many wonderful things. But this is not the day of apostolic miracles. But God is at work, and we see this specifically right here as Paul has completed this, his third missionary journey. And uh, the, the tours that he's had up to this point, as I said earlier, he, he was a free man. Uh, but now um, those days have ended, and he's now, he's now a prisoner. He was just in Fort Antonia. Antonia, here's last week as we've looked uh, at chapter 23. And he will proceed to Rome, which God, Jesus promised him he would get to Rome, but he would go by way of chains. He will get to Rome. And God's providence will see that he gets to Rome. And as a matter of fact, Rome will flip the bill to get him there. Isn't that interesting? So up to this point, uh, we we have witnessed um, what is really in effect um, pre-trial hearings, the pre-trial hearings of Paul Um, He stood before the Jewish crowd in the temple back in chapter 22. He then uh, was in front of a more uh, formal hearing of the the Sanhedrin in chapter 3, Pharisees and Sadducees. And and now he's been taken from Jerusalem uh, because of that plot to kill him. There was 40 Jews who rose up and went on a hunger strike to put him to death. And they went to the Sanhedrin and they say, hey, we got an idea. You know, let's pretend that you want to inquire more of Paul, and then when they're bringing him to trial back to your presence, we'll see to it that he's put to death. These were zealots of the day. These were the radicals of the day. So when the Roman guard gets word of it, he he ushers him out of town with that great entourage of 400-plus soldiers, mighty men, takes him out at 9 p.m. to take him to Caesarea. And and that involved a very large uh, percentage of the Roman troops um, that were based right there in Jerusalem. We looked at that last week. So he's been taken now to the the headquarters of the Roman Empire in that part of the world, and that was the coastal city um, of Caesarea. Um, And that's where they took him. Um, So Claudius Lysias, uh, back in Jerusalem, was responsible for, for, for all that went on in Jerusalem. He was the ruler of Fort Antonia and was under Felix, who's the procurator of the whole territory, this whole territory of Judea, and that's where um, he will now go and, and stand before this Felix. So after a, a, series, a series of riots, 
Claudius gets him out of town. Um, he's now turned over to, to Felix, and I think you can imagine uh, Claudius up in Jerusalem saying, man, am I glad that's over, right? All that pressure. So Claudius pushed it to a higher court, and now Felix is going to have the same problem that Claudius had down in Jerusalem, as we will see. We'll see it unfold here. So he has a responsibility to, to Roman justice. Okay, just as a ruler of Rome, it was against the law to put to death any Roman citizen unless there was legitimate accusation against him, especially if he was moving against the empire. So he, have, he has that pressure, while at the same time he has pressure to uh, pacify the Jews. So on one side, he has an innocent man, this Apostle Paul, the one who's been accused and is being accused. And on the other, he has these hostile Jews who are applying pressure on him. And and that was the issue, as you recall, that finally caused Pilate to crack. Do you remember that? This was the pressure that was on Pilate. You remember, he came out and he said repeatedly of Jesus, I find no fault with the man. And what did, what, did, what did the Jews say? He, he said, this is, you know, your king. And they said, we have no king but who? But Caesar. They hated Caesar. They hated Rome. It's hypocrisy. So the pressure was, basically, the Jews were saying to Pilate, you know, look, if you don't deal with this man, we will report you to Caesar for allowing a seditionist to exist under your rule, and under your reign. And he'd already been in trouble. Pilate had already been in trouble with Caesar. So here, you know, like Pilate, he was trapped. And and Felix is confronted now with this same dilemma. So now the trial proper begins. Governor Felix, Marcus Antonius Felix. Notice the prosecution, verse 1. After five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. Hmm. It's only been five days since they moved Paul from Jerusalem into Caesarea. So here now in in this prosecution, we learn that the Sanhedrin... I mean, the ones who are really making a charge against Paul is mostly now made up of Sadducees, not Pharisees and Sadducees. And remember what was unique about the Sadducees compared to the Pharisees? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in afterlife. They didn't believe in angels and all this type of thing. No resurrection. And, and that's what Paul used, remember, when he was, uh, when he was being interrogated by the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, he caused them to fight amongst themselves by bringing up the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> and they started battling one another. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So here we learn that these Sadducees bring with them this, this polished lawyer. Five days after the Roman guards sneaked Paul out of Jerusalem by night. And he's an important um, lawyer called Tertullus. Now, this might signal a a certain weakness in their case. Maybe that's why. 
So they hire this important figure. No doubt he's probably one of the top lawyers of the day. He's, uh, notice this, the text says um, uh, he's a spokesman or a literally public speaker, a well-skilled orator. In our day, we refer to it as a mouthpiece. Like, you know, mob guys, you know, hire their mouthpiece. And that's what this guy was. And he starts out, man, typical lawyer. No offense if you're a lawyer, but he, he starts out with a whole lot of insincere flattery here. Right? I mean, after all, if you want to ki- win, win your case, you want to win over the judge. <clears throat> now, historians tell us that this, the, the record of, of Felix, Governor Felix, is that he was a very violent um, ruler. He was a, a hanging judge, if you will. Um, he, had, he had dealt very um, sharply and very decisively with troublemakers in the past. And uh, to end matters, he would simply have people crucified. So this is his reputation. So what makes the account even more sickening is that his, history tells us the Jews hated Felix. And then he opens up by speaking of peace. In, in foresight and reform under the rule of Felix. So, truth of the matter was, anytime the Jews would cause an uproar, they found themselves hanging on a Roman cross under this man. But notice what he says, verse 2. Since though, since through rather, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way, in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Okay, none of it's true. None of it's true. Felix knew it, they knew it, everyone in the Praetorium knew it. But flattery is a very common occurrence, isn't it? You flatter in order to get what you want. And most times it works, fortunately. But it's an unacceptable practice for a Christian. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A flattering mouth works ruin. Psalm 12, 3 says, The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips. Now, we should be quick and we should be ready as Christians to affirm our brothers and sisters, amen? To affirm their godly character, to affirm their their service unto the Lord, to encourage them. We should be prepared to to encourage their praiseworthy um, actions. But it's never right to exaggerate a person's qualities with selfish motives. So next time you praise someone, and I, you know, I think of this myself, too. when I say you, next time, I, I include all of us. Next time we praise someone, we ought to ask ourselves this. Am I praising this person for their benefit and edification? Or am I praising and encouraging this person to get something I want? Amen? Some people say, well, what's wrong with flattery? Well, it's a lie. 
It's a lie. These guys are lying to Felix, not that they care. It's a, it's a calculated misrepresentation to get what you want. In our, our study with the men on Thursdays, uh, we're going over uh, loving like Jesus loved. It's an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13. You know, love does not envy and so on. Um, and there's a great quote in there that arrogance, arrogance, okay, is sin that causes us to be rude to people who have nothing to offer us. Okay, think about that. Arrogance is sin that causes us to be rude to people who have nothing to offer us. Compared to or juxtaposed to flattery, which is sin that causes us to use flowery flowery language or embellished speech, sweet talk, to get something from someone who does have something to offer us. And that's a temptation that's a common route, common route of the world. So I can picture these Jews, you know, smiling, biting their tongue. As Tertullus says these things, and probably Felix is even rolling his own eyes while they're saying it. Right? Sly political move. Politics are slick, aren't they? They have no place in the church. Notice verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So there's three charges here brought about. First, that Paul was a plague, that he was a a political menace. That he stirred up trouble, that he's called, that that he's been the cause of of civil and, and riotous unrest. Not only in Jerusalem, but here the accusation is throughout the whole world, the known world, the Roman Empire. Everywhere he'd been. Okay, secondly, that he was a religious heretic, okay, which was to say this, that not only was he a disturber of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but he also was a leader of a sect, a religious sect, outside of the protective arms of Rome. In other words, Judaism was an accepted, tolerated, permitted religion. So the accusation was that he's leading a sect outside of that. Political menace. A pest. A pest comes from pestilence. So he's being accused of being a plague, a deadly disease, a criminal, an offender of the Roman Empire, and a heretic. Thirdly, it's the accusation that he's desecrated the temple. And Luke has already informed us over these last two or three chapters that that's an out-and-out lie. So here you have accusations that really, uh, they're, they're far too vague 
to charge the man. Um, Tertullus here in the Sanhedrin um, are, are hoping that, that Felix would see this as, as a threat to the peace of Rome. That's what they're really after. They want this guy's life ended. And, and this is the peace that Felix was supposed to keep. So you get something of the pressure here, a taste of the pressure that's on the man um, to do away with the man. And he's dr- they're trying to drive a wedge between Judaism and those of the way. Trying, trying to make Christians appear as, as, as heretical, as, as a kind of you know, cultic weird activity. So there, there's the uh, accusations. Notice now the defense, verse 10. Luke, who evidently must have been there, says that uh, Felix nods to Paul. That's a sign that it's now appropriate for him to defend himself uh, before these charges. So he goes on to speak in his own defense. He refutes their accusations point by point. And then in addition to that, he takes the opportunity, as Paul always does, to preach the gospel. Everything was a platform for that guy to preach the gospel. Amen? Amen? I don't know if you've ever been falsely accused, you know, either in a, a private setting or a public setting. Uh, but, you know, the question is, what do you do when you're falsely accused? Well, Paul's example, I think, is stellar. Just tell the truth. Simply tell the truth. Notice verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything, notice this, laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Interesting that the Sadducees didn't believe that, but he's saying Orthodox believers believe that. (laughs) So Paul begins by saying that he cheerfully defends himself. He says, look, I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days, right? He's been around the world. I've only been there 12 days. Five of them, right, five of the last 12 days he's been in Caesarea. And a couple of the days down there he was locked up in Fort Antonio, right? So Paul dismisses the claims. He says, these are out-and-out lies. But then he says this. The one thing I agree with, the real case, the real accusation, the, the, the one in which I do not deny, and that is that he preached Jesus Christ. I don't deny that. That he was a follower of the way. That he had proclaimed to, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees' resurrection from the dead. So notice this. Contrary to the flattery that Tertullus tries to use, Paul, in his introductory defense, 
simply shows respect without flattery. Right? Did you notice that? Knowing that you for many years have been a judge over this nation, I I cheerfully make my defense. And we ought to show respect to our leaders as well. Regardless of our politics, right? So what he's saying is simple. It's just, Felix, you've been around long enough to make a proper judgment, so I'll cheerfully make my defense. That's the first thing. Two, he makes clear that he came to Jerusalem He came to Jerusalem to worship and not to riot. Number three, he is not a ringleader of any sect, but he's a follower of the way. A term, by the way, that Felix was familiar with. Felix knew about the way. And I I love the term, the way. I wish we still used it today. Because it's a much more positive term, right? Because it provides the way to the Father, the way to deal with sin, the way we are to live, and that Jesus is that way. He is the way, truth, and life. So I wish we still used it. And it's also interesting that first century Christians didn't refer to themselves as ex-Jews. The first Christians were Jewish, right? They didn't refer to themselves as ex-Jews or former Jews, but instead, what? Completed Jews. True Jews. Viewing the Old Testament as pointing forward to Jesus Christ. The way. For all the Old Testament was fulfilled by and is fulfilled in Christ. So the way, you know, Christianity, the gospel was not some new or competing religious system. That's what he's pointing out. But instead, it's a completing belief. Everything that the prophets pointed to was this Christ that was to come. It's the Old Testament mystery revealed in Christ. That's what Paul writes about, amen? Ephesians, it's a mystery revealed. Christ makes sense of the Old Testament. I mean, there's no way to make sense. I think about these Jews next door, this Jewish school. There's no way to make sense even of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, their trip down to Egypt. Joseph's trip, as we'll see, down to Egypt. And being there, the people, these 70 who will be saved through that for 400 years, let alone the exodus, the wilderness, the promised land. You can't understand it without Christ. It's impossible. It's empty. Sorry, I didn't mean to preach. He unfolds the mystery of it all. For he's the fulfillment of it all. This is what Paul preached. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Here's Paul bringing up conscience again, as he often does. He, see, he says, look, I'm telling the truth because he knows that he's, he's standing before one greater than this Felix. As much respect as he has for governing authorities... Regardless of what they think and believe, he stands with respect before him, but he's, he knows he's standing before one greater than Felix. To whom all must give what? 
an account. So the underlying implication of Paul being ready to give an account is this. Felix, are you ready? Are you ready? Because everyone will. And then verse 17, now after several days I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. You remember that? They ought to, notice this, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. See Paul using the law to his benefit. They ought to be here to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Okay, alms simply means money for the needy. Paul says, look, I came here for one reason. It was to bring money to the needy. Remember the money that he gathered from the churches of Macedonia to bring to the saints in Jerusalem. He says, that's why I went. He was bringing it. He brought it, which is a sign of love. So Paul's on trial, but it's really not Paul who's on trial. The gospel's on trial. And if the gospel's on trial, that means Jesus Christ is on trial. So he preaches the resurrection. Why the resurrection? Why does he preach specifically about the resurrection? Why why always the emphasis on the resurrection? What does the resurrection do? Quite simply, the resurrection validates everything Jesus said and did. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't be here today. Amen? There'd be no reason to be here today. You'd be like the Jews next door. Hoping in in, in a Messiah. Rather than seeing the one. And knowing the one who is. So the resurrection is the father's well done. To the sons, it is what? So the resurrection says that this Jesus, the one who was put to death on a Roman cross, still lives. And he's a man to be reckoned with. So it's never really Jesus who's on trial. Man is on trial. For man, unbelievers are already condemned. Because they don't what? They don't believe. John 3.18. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're granted this this faith to believe and to walk by faith. There's no condemnation. But those who don't believe are already condemned. So he's standing before a bunch of condemned sinners and a condemned ruler of Rome as one who's not condemned. So this is Jesus the one who is the way. So what's Felix going to do? That's the question. Persecution. There's the defense. And then we see the result of this whole matter. 
Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Did you get that? Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. Procrastination. Loved ones we know who are putting off a response to the gospel should be taken to this text, I think. Putting them off saying, when Lysias, the, <clears throat> when, when, when Lysias the, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After, after all, uh, that's how you receive food when you are locked up in this day. No three hots in a cot and cable TV in prison in this day. Recreation, yard time, handball, weights. <laughs> you ever been in a prison? You'd be surprised what you get. So what, what Felix does, having a rather accurate knowledge of Christianity, delays. He delays. And you know what? There's no record that he ever called on Claudius Lysias to come. There's no record that Claudius Lysias ever came. So here I think we see something called, you know, what, what is a permanent postponement. I mean, after all, he was, he was in prison for two years, as we'll see here. So the question is, where did his accurate knowledge of Christianity come from? Where, where, where did this accurate, this rather accurate knowledge of the way um, come from? Well, number one, he had been in Judea for eight or nine years, his position here. Okay, and there was a great evangelist in Caesarea by the name of Philip and a lot of other believers along with Philip in this region of the world. So after some days, verse 24, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Here's an interesting character. Who was Jewish. So here you have a Roman with a Jew. He sent for Paul, heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about right, get this. Okay, this is, this is pivotal when, when, when you hear about their lives. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, uh, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Politics. So Marcus Antonius Felix was married to this Drusilla. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa back in Acts 12, who God sent an angel to strike dead. And remember, he was eaten by worms. Really bizarre type of thing. He was trying to take glory unto himself, and God kills him. And historians verify that this Drusilla was drop-dead gorgeous. A very beautiful woman. She was a Jewess. 
She was originally married to a king from Syria and was persuaded by Felix to leave him. And then Felix marries her, and this is Felix's third wife. So you have this raving beauty who at the time, when she was seduced away, was about 16. So the whole thing is a very ugly, immoral, disgusting thing from the beginning. Paul's no fool. He knows these things. So Paul spoke to them. Notice. Notice this now. Okay, with that in mind, Felix, Drusilla, her previous marriage, he steals her away. Paul spoke to them about faith in Christ, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Who says that Christians never called out political leaders by pointing to righteousness? Jesus called out John, uh, John the Baptist, rather, called out uh, uh, Herod, another Herod, in his relationship with Herodias. You know, it's been said that man can control almost anything except himself, right? especially people with this kind of power. So Felix is startled. He's afraid. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel startles. It's meant to make you feel uncomfortable. If you're going to preach the whole council, right? Right? Just, you know, loving them into the kingdom is a bunch of nonsense. Yeah, we want to establish relationships with unbelievers that shows the love, right, and benevolence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're going to declare the gospel... It's going to startle. So this guy, he moves from from delay to, to dismissal of the whole thing. Go away. Notice, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. So he basically ends up dismissing the gospel as irrelevant. And he's hope because look, he's hoping for a bribe. He's hoping for material compensation from this guy. His prisoner. This is a very important principle. Accurate knowledge of the gospel does not equal saving faith. And we need to be reminded of that as we raise our children under the promises of the covenant, right? I grew up with accurate knowledge of the gospel. I grew up in very reformed circles, very thankful for that. And you're told, you hear about the depravity, the total depravity of, the, of man, but you're also hearing at the same time you're the covenant children of God. And then you're confused. Okay, am I a covenant child of God or am I totally depraved? Which is it? <laughs> you're not a covenant child of God unless you come in by way of the new birth, regardless of who your parents are. All are totally depraved. All are in need of saving grace, the saving grace of the gospel. So accurate knowledge does not equal saving faith. This man had a very familiar knowledge of the gospel. He was married to a Jewess. He's married to a a, a, a woman who has Jewish roots. But that's not the same as embracing the truth. 
So it's possible to know what the Bible teaches and yet never do anything about it. And this is a warning for our loved ones. You've got to be bold enough to tell them. Not condemn them. They're already condemned. But to warn them. Because man is altogether responsible for every bit of revelation given to them. My heart pains more for the people who sit in church for years as an unconverted people than it does for people who have never stepped inside of the church as an unbeliever. Because a lot of people think, they, they reason, you know, I'll come to Jesus after college. I'll come to Jesus after I sow some wild oats. I'll come to Jesus um, when I get married. Or I'll come to Jesus just before I get married. How about that? And they will only discover, perhaps, they will discover, perhaps, God's all-powerful, we know this, but they will discover, perhaps, like Felix discovered, that the more you put off Christ and his gospel, you come to realize that you're unable to come to faith in Christ and his gospel. It happens. Because now's the accepted time, right? Now's the day of salvation. I don't know what happened to Felix as far as that. As far as that goes. But it is a sad story on the surface, right? A man who preserved himself wanting money forfeited what really mattered. He had Christ's apostle in his jail. So here's Paul. He's going to spend two years here. Okay, no final testimony, no, no case closed here. Felix keeps him in prison. And then some, someone comes in to take his place, and he turns him over to this Festus. And since we're out of time, we'll see next time uh, what Festus tries to do with him. This is not like Festus a gun smoke, but... <laughs> Matthew. That's it for today. Any comments?